These chapters are getting a little bit shorter, at least. That is nice. But somehow I feel as though we're not getting any quicker about talking. The last couple, especially since we split that one into two, are like each of them are just about an hour. Well, that's pretty good then. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy. I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 33, Day of Reckoning. And we jump right back in with Wintro. Yeah, I believe when we last left off, Kenneth had spotted the Vivacia on the sea and there was a, he could see a mutiny happening on board or what he believed to be a mutiny. And they were going after Vivacia, and we are now back on deck during the same storm. No time has passed, really. Yeah, so the initial plan for them was to go through this gap between islands where the current was, because it's really risky, but it's faster. And they knew that the live ship was going to go around Crooked Island, around to the east, because that's safer, a little bit more slow, though. And they were going to cut off the Vivacia, but they saw that the Vivacia was pretty much unmanned. And drifting towards this current, and uh, Kenneth said, like, let's go after her. We're going to board her so she doesn't die, basically. Right. <laughs> so the live ship doesn't sink. But we're back with Wintro on deck here, and he's describing a chaotic scene. When we had last left Wintro, the slaves were just starting to free themselves, kind of. Um, Gantry had just died, and Wintro was leading the pack with the lantern and saw Adar was behind him, freeing everybody. Yes. He says, From the moment saw Adar had thrown the lantern at Gantry, it had been out of Wintro's hands. He had not started this carnage. This slaughter was not his doing. And right before that, he finishes off a description of the scene by saying this was not Sa's doing. There was nothing of Sa in this perdition. And like only humans aboard the ship were, you know, damaging and violent towards one another while he's describing the storm around them as well. So once again, we have Wintrow being like, I'm free of any blame of this or trying to convince himself because as we set up in the previous chapters and as Sa Adar pitched to him, what was he going to do? rechain all of the slaves once they got the one out or let them free like what was of sa and that was a it's a very complex moral question that i'm sure a lot of philosophers have pondered over over the years and i'm not going to talk about it here <laughs> right i think it's in the context of this book it's really interesting to see how wintro and gantry are had both been struggling with this right. of this idea of I'm only one person what could I possibly do to make a change and that is something that we kind of continue to see for the rest of the chapter of it's only one person what good is one person but then also seeing that one change really does affect have a big ripple effect so yeah yeah I don't know it's it's very it's a very repetitive thing that's showing up in this whole book that's really culminating now in this big scene of the slaves taking over. Yeah. And, and because of all the chaos around him, he doesn't have time to fully think through everything. So it's as much, you know, action-based as Wintrow gets, but he still has the self-reflection thoughts in his monologue here saying that, you know, he only followed Sadar and helped him unshackle slaves. 
It was the right thing to do, more right than trying to warn his father and crewmates? Don't ask that question. Don't let that question exist. Those deaths were not his fault. Over and over, Wintrow told himself that. Not his fault. What could one boy do to stop this torrent of hatred once it had broken loose? He was just a leaf caught up in a storm wind. He wondered if Gantry had felt the same way. And as you pointed out, that is something that Robin Hobb was setting up in the previous chapters. We got a look inside of Gantry's mind, and he was thinking similar thoughts. Right. And I do think it's important to point out that I think normally me specifically, but the both of us are a little bit harsher in moments where things like this is happening and people are trying to absolve themselves of blame. That's, I think, something we try to call out. But in this instance, I don't necessarily know that it needs to be called out because Wintro is 14 and it's all kind of happening so fast, right? This is such a horrible thing and there is no good answer. There is, it is a really gray area of what's better sending someone on to slavery or keeping them in like, or letting them be free in the sea. Right. And it's all just really complicated and, He's in the middle of it. It's not like this has this is afterwards and he's processing. This is the middle of deaths happening of people that he knows from both sides all around. And that would be really hard to reckon with in the moment. And so I'm not that bothered by the fact that he's trying to push the blame away because I think at this point he's kind of in shock and just trying to move forward. If right. he sits there and ponders, he's going to freeze and that'll be it. And there are other things to get done right now. And he, he kind of becomes disoriented because he's below decks and he's let all of this happen around him and all the slaves have kind of moved away. Some of them are still sitting below because one, they don't know what's going on or want to choose to stay below, etc. But he's just kind of milling around, lost, and then he hears a scream burst out, one that rang within the hold and wakened echoing cries of terror in the churning slaves. Vivacia, he gasped to himself, and then, Vivacia, he called out to her, praying she could hear him, and know he was coming to her. His groping hand suddenly met the ladder, and he flung himself up it. So he, he realizes, like, I'm not the only one who's kind of lost and scared here, and he, he reaches out to the one other person that he knows needs his help, and the only other one that he can help in this moment. Right. And in doing that, he really does put himself in the middle of danger, which is not really something that we see when Tro doing a lot. And this is more of a concentrated choice. He's making choices. He's taking the next step. And I think typically we see him trying to wait for somebody to tell him what to do or a way like in this, he waited until he kind of let everybody else do the things. And then he just went along with the flow. And here he is going against the flow to help Vivacia. And that's kind of a change. It's giving him a purpose to help her. Right. Yeah. And he's describing this whole scene around him. He scrambles up the ladder. The first crewmate he comes upon who's dead is mild there. And he's talking about, you know, all these screams of death around him. And he's kneeling by mild, hearing the sounds of fighting elsewhere in the ship, but capable of comprehending fully only this death. And it's just such a shock to Wintrow and his, his mind of trying to comprehend what is actually happening, what he actually maybe unleashed himself. And 
He sits there for a little bit and then thinks others were dying now, slaves and crewmen. Vivacia lived through it all, he suddenly recalled. She felt it all and alone. So once again, he's just kind of starting and stopping. All of this is happening around him. Here's Vivacious cry. He starts up the ladder. I have a purpose. Again, he's confronted with horror and stopped by those mixed emotions in his head. And again, thinks about Vivacia and heads towards her. He stumbles on the deck. He's walking towards the uh, front of the ship. And he's trying to scream out, you have to stop this. The ship won't take it. You have to stop. But no one's heeding him at all. He's trying to scramble up there. He's tripping over what might have been bodies, scrabbling back to his feet, evading a man who's clutching at him, groping his way forward, screaming out vivacia. His voice a thin and pitiful thing in the rising storm, but still she heard him. And she reaches back, crying out, Wintro, Wintro, shrieking his name as a nightmare-plagued child calls for her mother. So he gets up to the foredeck, and for a moment all he can do is grasp the rung of the ladder and fight for air. The waves are crashing over because no one's really on the helm at all, and the sails, as we noted from last chapter, with Kennet and Sorkor there pointing out that no one is reefing the sails, no one's bringing the sails up and tying them down, because you don't want the sails down with all of that crazy wind could tear the sails, could drive the, the boat off course, whatever. So Vivacia is out of control at this point, so she's terrified. The boat is taking on water, and he's grasping the forward rail, trying to make a connection. He says he could not feel her, could see her only as a shadow before him. Vivacia, he cried to her. For an instant, she did not respond. He gripped the railing hard and reached to her for all, with all his might. Like warm hands clasping on a cold night, her awareness joined gratefully with his. Then her horror and shock flowed into his mind as well. And they make that connection. Right. I think in this moment, it is such an important thing that they're connecting. And I think it really speaks to the growth of their relationship that Wintrow does care so much about what's going on with Vivacia. If this would have happened earlier, I don't know that he would have understood, let alone sought her out to comfort her. And so seeing that he is rushing past people in need to go to her first, he on her way to her is seeing people struggling with life. And instead of the typical priest Wintrow that we see trying to help everyone and trying to heal those that he can heal. They are nothing to him right now because his ship needs him. And it's just a very different side of Wintrow. And it, it does really show the growth and the change in both of them. Right. Definitely. And also Vivacia grasping back at Wintrow is like the only safe port that she knows really, because before we know they, shunned each other really right closed off that connection but she needs something here some sort of support and wintrow is there offering it she informs him that they've killed comfrey and no one is at the wheel so with his uh knowledge and her shared knowledge he uh, can feel the despair and the death that is widespread on this deck and knows that they're fighting for survival just vivacia herself fighting to survive from being capsized and sunk. 
but everything else is also happening. All the chaos and all the fighting on deck as well is happening. So he's just like, okay, what should I do? (laughs) Command me. I also want to point out that there's a specific line talking about how lives are winking out on her deck and it feels as though she is losing pieces of herself with every death. And I think that's really important to point out because it is, again, this sense of there's mysticism there, I guess. We don't really know how the live ships work fully and we don't know. She's already suffering with not really fully grasping who she is as Vivacia. And now all the death on board her is also having an effect, even people that she doesn't know very well. Yeah, it, to me, it feels like since live ships are made from silver, basically, right? right? And we've talked about how silver is memories based and how it, it's vastly, uh, vastly important to the whole mechanical parts of silver and how that magic works. Right. To me, it feels like these crew members are part of the experiences that Vivacia has shared, part of her awareness. And yes, crew members do leave and die when in normal times, but this is so much all at once. It must feel like some of her shared experiences and her memories because they are part of this crew and have been attached to her and touch her wizardwood deck with bare appendages. They're just gone all of a sudden and there's no time to mourn or grieve or even just kind of take that experience and compartmentalize or go through that it's just one after the other gone 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 and to Wintro, who who doesn't have that mental awareness hasn't really explored the bond it must feel like some of her memories are just kind of disappearing right and i do wonder too if Well, I was wondering if it was like something a little bit different and it was more of the there's less of the dragon coming through and that's the part of herself that she's losing because more human memories are sinking in. Oh, interesting. I mean, it could not be. That's kind of a baby tinfoil hat theory. That's cool, though, too. I like that, too. But especially because we know before this, she had let go of the connection with Wintrow because she wanted to explore herself and those memories and figure out what and who she is and now with the humans dying on board her she's going to to absorb some of that their lives and their knowledge and so i wonder if that piece of feeling like she's losing herself is losing the bit of the dragon memories that she's tapped into right or with how many people what what you said just sparked this uh with how many people are dying on her decks she has a fragile established idea of who she is right and with more people's life experiences sinking into her that's more people's memories absorbing into her so her sense of self is kind of getting lost right with so much bombardment (laughs) yeah and i think it really talked i mean we've talked about how or at least i think the book has talked about how only people who own the live ships tend to end their life on the live ship like they are They die on board the ship. Nobody else is allowed that honor. I think there was maybe some short little paragraph about how only really, really honored people get to do that, like on purpose, that aren't part of the family. And so I think that also could be messing with the Vestrit connection because these people aren't blood related to Vestrits and there's now a lot more 
dead not Vestrits than there are Vestrits housed in her memories. Yeah, for sure. But either way, Wintrow is now looking for what to do next, and he asks what to do. And I think this is something that's really good about Wintrow, although sometimes it's annoying because he does kind of wait to figure out what to do. He doesn't just figure it out on his own or do something. He has to be told what to do. I think it's good in this moment because if he just started trying, he has no knowledge in this. So he could make things way worse. And so Vivacia is able to kind of grasp onto the situation of, okay, I'm the captain now and tell him what to do. And he's following orders. And I think that also is sort of helping to ground her in the moment and focus on that instead of all the death and pain and suffering. Yeah. And so she direct him, directs him up to the wheel to take hold of the rudder and to get it straight. And then also shouting, tell them to stop killing each other or they'll all die. I swear it. And he turns back and also yells out, you heard her. She'll kill us all if you don't stop the fighting now. Stop the fighting. Manor sails, those of you who know how, or not a one of us will survive this night. And let me through to the helm. They hit a wave. He goes flying across the deck. He doesn't even know if he's still on the ship. And all of a sudden, he's up against the railing, holding on for dear life. And he kind of struggles free of that. And he notices that most of the others who remained on the deck were clearly not sailors. By the way, they flung themselves at the railings and ropes and grasped tight. They seemed as just as shocked by the next dousing wave. Obviously, they found a manacle keys because a lot of them are freed of their shackles. But uh, he's staring around and he's seeing bodies of both slaves and crew washing back and forth in the waste with the wallowing of the ship. And he stares around incredulously. They fought for their freedom only to die by drowning. Had they killed all the crew for nothing? I do want to back up a little bit because before that he talks about how not only are the people that are on deck clearly not accustomed to being sailors, but the people that stayed under deck, under the deck, keep opening the door to look at what's happening and then ducking under with the door still open. Of the hatches, yeah. Yeah, the hatches still open to get away from the waves, but letting the waves get in, therefore filling the boat. So... Mm -hmm. They have no care in the world that they're basically sinking the boat just because they want to look and see from the safety of below. And it's really hitting Wintrow how precarious their situation is at this moment. Mm -hmm. But Sa'adar's voice comes through the chaos and says, there he is. There's our lad. Boy, Wintrow, come here. They've barricaded themselves in there. Any way to smoke the rats out. So he's focused on killing the rest of the crew or getting to the rest of the crew. And Wintrow tries to take control here, saying, this storm will take us down if I don't get to the wheel. He drew his voice from deep within him and tried to sound commanding, like a man. Stop the killing, or the sea will finish it for all of us. Let the crew come out and man the ship as best they can, I beg you. We're taking on water with every wave. Shut those hatches down tight, he bellowed at them, and put some men on the pumps, or everyone sick or hiding below is going to drown, even before the rest of us. We need to take in those sails. Give the wind less to push on. One slave declares loudly, I'm not going to go up there. I didn't get out of chains just to kill myself another way. And Wintrow shouts back, Then you'll die when we all go under. 
Some of them are making half-hearted attempts to shut the hatches, but all of them are holding on to something, so it's not working and very ineffectual. And Vivacia all of a sudden screams that there's rocks ahead. Wintra, you have to get to the helm. And before he goes, he screams out, let the crew out, promise them their lives if they'll save yours. And he scrabbles up swiftly to try to get to that wheel. I think this is really cool because this is Wintrow, again, taking control of a situation. He's stepping in, he's making decisions, and he's going against the flow, which doesn't happen very often. And to see him in this moment stand up and say, no, you're killing us all. And obviously it's life and death, so of course he has to make a, a choice. But he is telling him, Saw Dare is so concerned with just killing everybody for revenge that he's not really paying attention to the fact that they're all going to die anyway if he doesn't figure this out. Nobody here understands the severity of the situation except for Wintrow, it seems. Yeah. And I know a little bit later, Wintrow does mention that he kind of hears Saadar and some others talking in the background. So it seems like maybe negotiations are going on, finally getting through their skulls of what Woodrow is saying. Right. But for but he's the one that has to make those calls and tell them to, because otherwise bloodlust is just filling them. Right. And it's it's really interesting to see Wintrow fight back so strongly, right? Like we don't get that. And he does have to stand up and say, Yeah, you it's scary, but you know what's scarier? Actually dying yeah, because like, you're not going to do this. Especially <laughs> when the guy's like, oh, I didn't get rid of the chains just to die a different way. And Wintrow's like, yeah, you literally did because you're not going to help. What are you talking about? It's it's chaos. Yeah. So Wintrow gets the wheel. He pulls Comfrey off. He realizes that the wheel is Wizardwood as well. And he's shouting out, tell me what to do. Vivacia is screaming back, hard port. But since it's Wizardwood, he reaches more towards that connection after that. He set his hands to it more fully, not sure whether he sinned or not. He reached not for sob, but for oneness with the ship. He abandoned his fear of losing himself in her. Steady, he whispered to her, and felt an almost fraction, uh, frantic leaping of connection. With it came her fear and also her courage. He shared her awareness of the storm and the current. Her wizardwood body became his greater self. And he realizes that the wheel had been built uh, with the assumption that a grown man with a grown man's strength would be on it. So he's struggling a bit to hold it steady, but he's trying as best as he can with instruction from Vivacia. Winter was putting his full weight of his slight body to turning it, and he felt every point he gained as a small victory, but wondered if the ship could answer the rudder in time. It seemed to him that they hit the next wave more squarely, cutting through it rather than being nudged aside by it. But he's looking around in the middle of nowhere with dark all around them, and it suddenly strikes him as ridiculous. He and the ship were alone in their struggle to save them all. Everyone else on board was too intent on killing one another. You have to help me, he said quietly. You have to be your own lookout for both waves and rocks. Reach for me with what you know. So he hears those negotiations in the background, and he's... Just telling himself, forget about them. It's you and I, my lady. You and I alone. Let's try to stay alive. Interestingly, this is very similar to what Kenneth's charm was basically telling Etta. Yeah. Just at same storm moments ago on a different ship. 
it's just the two of us. Let's just try to stay alive. It's the same vibe. Yeah, basically. Same vibe, different font. (laughs) (laughs) So he's kind of going through this whole thing, trying to captain everything. The sales are working against him, obviously. He kind of heard some negotiations in the background, and they're starting to get through the storm a little bit. Just a little bit. A different sort of rain suddenly began to fall, just as insistent, but lighter somehow. Yet even as the storm abated and the first graying of dawn tinged the sky, the wheels seemed to grow stiffer and heavier under his hands. The current has us, Vivacious low cry carried back to him. There are rocks ahead. I know this channel from long ago. We should not have come this way. I cannot stay clear of them by myself. So this is the channel and the current that Kenneth was talking about that is speedy, that is very dangerous. And with their sails down, with the rebellion hitting at just the right time, there was no crew to steer them around the island. They went the dangerous way. Right. And that would be even scarier for Vivacia because this is her first time probably being awoke or awakened and going on this straight. So I don't I doubt she went through it with the other captains either. They probably just know of it. Right? Yeah, that's From fair. Their memories. She just, yeah, I guess I thought because of the way she said, like, I know this, this water I've been like, we shouldn't have gone this direction. Maybe one other captain had yeah, accidentally, possibly. Yeah. but, um, no, there's still the, the definite possibility. They've never been there. They just know, like you said, but now they're on it. And Vivacia obviously does not have a ton of trust that Wintrow can man the wheel well enough to right. do it with her. And I mean, fair enough. Like he said, he's pulling with his whole weight just to get it to move a little bit. And now it's getting harder because they're in the current. Mm -hmm. So definitely a scary time. And there's all of a sudden a group in front of them, manacled men pushed forward. And one of them is Torg. Sadar's voice says, he says he'll steer and steer true if we let him live. He says we cannot get past those rocks without him. He alone knows this channel. So Wintro recognizes Torg and Torg recognizes him back and says, you, the low laugh he gave was disbelieving. You did this to us? You? He shook his head. I don't believe it. You had the treachery, but not the guts. You stand there and hold the wheel like the ship is yours, but I don't believe you took her. Despite his chains and the snarling map faces surrounding him, he spat to one side. You didn't have the balls to take her when she was offered to you on a silver platter. The furious words poured from him like a pent-up flood. Oh yes, I knew all about your father's deal with you. I heard what he said that day. Your father was going to give you the mate's position on her when you turned 15. Never mind that I worked like a dog for him the past seven years. Never mind old Torg. Give the captaincy to Gantry and the mate's position to a pink-cheeked boy. And you'd lord it over me. He laughed. Well, Gantry's dead, they tell us. And your father's not much better off. He crossed his arms on the chest. You see that island off your starboard side? That's Crooked Island. You should have taken the ship on the other side of it. There's rocks and current ahead. So if you want a man at the helm of this tub, maybe you'd better talk nice to Torg. Maybe you'd better offer him something a bit more than his own life to get your sorry asses out of this fix. He smiled a toadish smile confidence suddenly that they needed him that he could turn the whole situation to his profit maybe you'd better talk nice and fast for the rocks are just ahead the men behind him new hands taken on in jamalia cast fearful glances ahead through the darkness 
Sadar asks Wintrow, what should we do? Can we trust him? And Wintrow's just reflecting. He's like, this is laughable, pretty much. It's so horrifying that it's laughable because here Torg is. Sa have mercy on us all. <laughs> Torg is capable of doing this, but was also Torg capable of putting the ship on the rocks for the sake of vengeance? Could any man take revenge that far to throw his own life away with it? The tattoo on Wintrow's face itched. No, Wintrow said at last, I don't trust him, and I'd kill him before I gave him the helm of my ship. A map face shrugged callously. The useless die. Wait, Wintrow cried, but it was too late. And Torg is thrown overboard without even a scream. So, before we touch on Torg's death, <laughs> I want to go back and talk about Torg himself and what he has done in this situation. He's revealing a lot about his own motivations and how he views the world. The reason he didn't want Wintro to get the mate position is because he was sure after all the horrible things he did to Wintro, Wintro would use that to get revenge on him. Right. Because he would do that in Wintro's position. So of course Wintro is going to do that. And he couldn't stand the idea that Wintro, who was so young and incapable in his eyes, would get the chance to have more power than him. And so he went out of his way to make sure that Wintro wouldn't ever be able to see that power, at least not easily, as easily as it would have been. And I really think that speaks to his horrible character and how evil he was right i guess yeah. for lack of better words and then there's also this this thing where he's trying to present himself as this big bad he knows everything he knows this channel he can he's the only one who will be able to get them through and i just want to ask do you think that's true do you think he could have actually regardless of if you think he would have put them into the rocks on purpose. Do you think he was even capable or knew this channel enough to be able to sail them safely through? Um, not really, but I wouldn't be surprised if he knew of it. I mean, he was a third mate. He did sail on slave ships before he was with, uh, Kyle Haven. Mm -hmm. So he's been a sailor for a long time. I wouldn't be surprised if he, would have been able to, but also I'm definitely would not be surprised if he was just trying to bluff his way out and save his own life. Fair enough. I think it's more likely he's just trying to bluff, but I, at the same time, yes, horrible person, needlessly cruel, maybe not an amazing sailor, but he has knowledge, you know? I guess. I, I don't think he does know this. I don't like I don't think he right, I guess yeah. it's really hard to tell what role of people know how to actually sail a ship. Right. Like, I don't know if every person on board is trained on how to take over. It doesn't seem that way. It seems like he's in, in a mate's position. So right. I would assume that, yes, he knows all of the positions because that seems to be kind of the tradition that if you are going to be raised to a place of a mate of any mm -hmm. sort, you have to know all the different spots and positions and what to do. Yeah, that's fair. So I guess maybe he does know how to sail a ship, but 
I don't know. I feel like he's, I mean, I guess he obviously knows that there are rocks, but Vivacia was just yelling about rocks. So, and, and again, he's right. I'm pretty sure it is Crooked Isle right there. It is. He yeah. points out. So I, I think it's, even if he doesn't know the passage, he knows of it, which is right. what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah, he might not have sailed it, but I think he has knowledge of the area. That's fair. I think he's seen it on a map once <laughs> and was like, this is probably where, like, based off of where we were going by, we're probably in this area. Well, if he ran the slave trade before, it's made, he's probably made this journey multiple times and they always go around it because the other previous captain said, like, there's current and rocks right. here. So. He's probably been past it quite a few times. That's fair, but that doesn't mean he knows. I don't know. I just, I don't think that he is good. I think Vivacia has talked about other people being good on the wheel, and she has not made a single comment about Torg being good on the wheel, despite his horribleness. Like, so that gives me the feeling that he wouldn't be a very talented person, and I don't think he's going to take direction from a woman shiphead. Like, I, I don't think he's going to take Vivacia's warnings. I don't think he's going to listen to anybody but himself. And I don't know if I think that he would purposefully bash the sh- ships into the rocks. I think he's too much of a coward. Yeah, I think he would try to sail them out and then think that he has the upper hand now that things are calm and could beat them all by force. But I don't know. Super interesting. I think the most interesting part of this exchange is how he's like, well... Kyle's basically dead now, so I guess I can have the ship, which is really strange because I thought that there was at least some respect on that level, but maybe Torg just isn't capable. I think I think it was lost after he was going to offer Wintro the mate ahead uh, of Torg because he seems very like the jilted lover stereotype you know <laughs> just like i put in my time or like the uh, the tenured employee who is absolutely garbage at their job but just kind of grandfathered into the whole process and they're like i should have that promotion because i've been here the longest right (laughs) touche but yeah that's the end yeah that's the end of gantry i'm sorry Yeah, he's just tossed over the side and it's just another thing that wintro has to think about feel guilty about another life on his hands right and this time he actually did say i would kill him before i would let him be here so a little bit less nebulous of him following an order and the person breaking free and killing somebody. Yeah. And he says on his single word, not to trust the man Torg had died. And then the other sailors fall to their knees, crying out and begging him to spare them. It must feel horrible. (laughs) Right. Well, especially because he's not somebody who's grasping after power. He doesn't knowing even with Torg out of the way and, finding his end as reparations for the horrible things he has done his entire life, surely, but especially on this trip, that doesn't matter. It's not Wintro to kill people for that reason. That's Saw's job to decide what happens to people. And he has somewhat of like a, a wariness or kind of not really disgust, but a little bit of like, eh, this isn't so great for the traveling priests who are judges. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think this situation is like his worst nightmare. (laughs) And now he has people begging for their lives to him and it's actually kind of on him to make sure that they live. Yeah. And he says a terrible disgust wells up in him, but it's not for those who are begging for their lives because it's for himself. He says to Sardar, get the chains off them, send them aloft, you know, reef the sails, cry out if you see rocks. 
and he knows it's kind of a stupid order, but it's all he can do because he knows that three men can't sail a ship together. And he asks for his father. Where is the captain? Is he alive? They're all looking at him blankly, but uh, because he realizes none of them know that the captain is his father. So he says, okay, where's Captain Haven? And one of the deckhands volunteers below. He's down below with his head and ribs busted up. Wintrow waded up and decided in favor of his ship. He pointed to Sa'adar. I need the ship's captain up here, and gently. He's no good to us if he's unconscious. And the useless die, he thought to himself, as the priest dispatched men to fetch the captain. An overseer's threat to a slave became a credo to live by. To save the crew, he'd have to show the freed slaves their usefulness. Unchain those two, he ordered. Get every live sailor who can move aloft. A matte face shrugged. There's only these two now. Only two left alive. And his father saw forgive him. He looked at the man he had thrown, who had thrown Torg overboard. You, you threw a sailor overboard, one we might have used. You take his place now. Get aloft to the lookout's post. Cry down to me what you see. He glared around at the others standing around them. It suddenly infuriated him that they would stand about idly. The rest of you make sure the hatches are down tight now. Get on the pumps, too. I can feel she's too heavy in the water. Saw only knows how much water we took on. His voice was quieter, but just as hard as he added, Clear the deck of bodies and get these collapsed tents tidied away. So this is kind of Wintro fully fitting into a role of leadership. He's just... I'm mad at these people not moving or not trying. We're in a fight for our lives. I'll direct everybody. And he's finally stepping into a place that Kyle later remarks on the only time he sounded like his son. I'm wondering, is this all Wintrow alone or is this Vivacia influencing him? Probably a little bit. I mean, he reached for that connection and wasn't hesitant about losing himself in her. So he has access to all of her memories, just as he felt well, he was kind of possessed-ish by the memories and thoughts of Efren Vestrit that first night aboard. Right. I, I think it's a little bit of that, and that's definitely the knowledge coming up. But he is a sailor himself now, right? He's spent seven months or so being right. ship's boy. So... I think he has some knowledge, but I think the commanding tone and everything like that, he's drawing from those memories. Fair. Of course, the slave is balking at uh, climbing up the mast a bit here. But uh, Wintrow barks back, you know, get up there if you want to live. There's no time for your fear. The ship is the only thing that matters now. Save her if you want to save yourselves. That's the only time you've ever sounded like a son to me. Blood had darkened down the side of Kyle Haven's face. He moved with his body at a twist, trying not to jar the ribs that poked and grated inside him. He was paler than the gray sky overhead. He looked at his son holding the ship's wheel, at the scarred map faces that lumbered hastily off to do his bidding, at the debris of the insurrection, and shook his head slowly. This is what it took for you to find your manhood? It was never lost, he said flatly. You simply couldn't recognize it because I wasn't you. I wasn't big and strong and harsh. I was me. You never stepped up to the mark. You never cared about what I could give you, Kyle shook his head. You and this ship. Spoiled children, both of you. Wintrow gripped the wheel tightly. We don't have time for this. The Vivacia can't steer herself. She's helping me, but I want your eyes too. I want your knowledge. 
He could not keep the bitterness from his voice. Advise me, father. He's truly your father? Sa'adar asked in consternation. He enslaved his own son? Neither man answered him. Both peered ahead into the storm. After a moment, the priest retreated to the stern of the ship, leaving them almost alone. What are you going to do with her? His father demanded suddenly. Even if you get safely through this channel, you haven't enough good men to sail her. These are treacherous waters even for an experienced crew, he snorted. You're going to lose her before you even had her. All I can do is the best I can, Wintrow said quietly. I didn't choose this, but I believe Sa will provide. Sa, Kyle shook his head in disgust. Then, keep her to the center of the channel. No, a couple more points port. There, hold her steady. Where's Torg? You should put him aloft to cry out what he sees. Wintrow considered it an instant, combining his father's opinion with what he felt through Vivacia. Then he made the correction. Torg's dead, he said after a brief silence. He was put over the side because a slave considered him useless. He gestured with his chin to a man who clung frozen halfway up the mast. He was supposed to take the lookout post. Kyle is aghast at that and has a silence. And then he speaks, his voice strained later. All of this... Voice pitched low for Wintrow's ears alone. All of this just so you could take the ship now instead of a few years from now? The question measured the distance between them for Wintrow. The gulf between them was vast and uncrossable. None of this was about any of that. A stupid statement. But all the words he could utter in a lifetime would not make his father understand him. Let's only speak of getting it through this channel, basically, is what Wintrow says. The only thing they would ever share ever really share was the ship after a long time his father steps up and agrees and talks to a uh, commands a, another sailor who is aboard to get up aloft and cry so this is again a fundamental fundamental difference between the way Kyle and Wintrow think Kyle's thoughts are all on the power that being a captain brings you, all on his lust after being a premier captain and what kind of honor it brings you to be a captain of a live ship, which is what Vivacia discussed in a few chapters previous, I believe. And that's the only thing he can really focus on. So he's like, Wintro, you brought this all along so you could have this of your own accord and couldn't wait two years because you hate me so much. And Wintrow's like, no, I hate you because of who you are, not because you, <laughs> you were going to give me the ship two years before I, or two years after I wanted it. You know, that, that's just the fundamental difference between the two. Right. They just don't have consideration or thoughts for the same kinds of things or the same values. Well, I think part of the problem too is at least Wintro tries. He tries to see where his father is coming from and can see the values and what his father is thinking right. and understand from his father's point of view, Kyle doesn't do that for anyone in his life, let alone his son. And so he's only measuring everybody's bushels by his own wheat or whatever the fool said. <laughs> I'll never get that quote right. But we have this moment where once again, Wintrow is struck by how different they are. It's too late. There is nothing that he can say all the time in the world would not change Kyle's mind. Kyle thinks this is how it is and that's how it's going to be. 
And it kind of echoes Torg's thoughts a little bit, although Torg goes hard in one direction and thinking like, oh yeah, you're doing this now. I don't believe it. You couldn't take it when it was offered to you on a silver platter. Kyle's kind of the same way, just thinking the ship was the ultimate goal. Being, you know, the captain and the mate is the ultimate goal, obviously. While Wintrow's just sitting there like, I just want to be a priest and left alone. <laughs> yeah, like I don't want this ship. <laughs> That's what you want, dad. It's not, no, dad. It's not your dream. Yeah. It's my, it's my, <laughs> it's not my dream. It's yours. Stupid Disney Channel movie. Uh, yeah, so we get the revelation to Sa Adar, which is important later, that Kyle enslaved his own son because Sa Adar's whole thing in the next book is like, I want to stick around to see Kyle Haven brought to justice because he's a slaver. He enslaved his own son. He's a bad dude, you know? Mm-hmm. And we get Kyle just being like, my own son hates me so much. And can't fathom why. Right. <laughs> even in Even in this moment... He sees no reason why his son should go to this extreme, even if it okay, even if Wintrow was doing all of this on purpose, like purposely started a slave uprising to take over the ship early, even if that was true, he can't fathom a single idea why his son would do that now. Right. Like, there's no, like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't have made you a slave. I'm sorry about that, but did you have to take over the ship? It's like, I can't believe you couldn't have just waited two more years. What? And, and then on Wintrow's side, we get, like, the third time where he said, there's a unfathomable gulf between me and my father. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, he's repeated this so many times, like, oh, now we're too far apart to mend that bridge. Yeah. And just... I guess the gap keeps getting wider. I don't know. But anyway, we leave off there with Wintrow and Kyle with them just about to hit that that gap between the the islands, the current and the rocks. Right. I do also want to take a second before we move on from this to talk about how I find it incredible that Kyle Haven is severely wounded and being held prisoner on this ship and he still has the audacity to look down on Wintrow and complain about how he's a spoiled brat and so is the ship. Like, <laughs> it, just like Torg, in this moment, they can't admit they're powerless and have to continue on their little power trip of making those around them feel lesser. It's right. so weird. Like, maybe think about the situation you're in and be a little bit nicer. I don't know. Speaking of thinking of the situation and being a little bit nicer and havens and uncharitable attitudes, we move to Malta. Yes. <laughs> Her first line is, you've sold me. You sold me to a monster to pay off a ship so I can be dragged off to some swampy tree camp to grow warts and make babies while you can all get rich off new trade contracts with the Cooper's family. Don't think I don't know how it works. Usually when a woman is given up to a rainwild husband, the family in Bingtown gets fat on the profits. The family had awakened her early and called her down to the kitchen for this. Breakfast wasn't even ready. <laughs> They're trying to explain, like, that's not how it is. Right. And just in case you forgot, the last thing we saw from the Vestrit household was Janie Cooperis coming forward and saying that if they miss another payment, they're taking Malta by force and also rain... Cupris wants to court Malta and they had to agree. Yeah. And, and Colwyn manufactures the uh, compromise between them where he is allowed to court Malta, but supervised. And then Malta makes the decision. 
And also he's not allowed to woo her with expensive gifts. Right. So her mom is like, that's not how it is. And then Ronica chimes in and Malta has the thought, at least her grandmother was honest. And Ronica says, actually, you sold yourself for a scarf, a flame jewel and a dream box. And don't claim you weren't smart enough to know what you were doing. You know, a great deal more than everything you let on. And Malta probably finds that is true because she's silent for a little bit and then says well i have the things in my room i could just return them and then thinks about how rough it would be to return the the flame jewel because it's so pretty but the the dream box it's just ugly now still has the cool smell but like it's just ugly gray dead wood right so even in this moment she can't admit she did anything wrong and she's like well, fine, if I can't play the role of victim and cry and pretend I don't know, because clearly grandma knows I know, then, okay, give it back. Right. I'm not going to admit or, like, say sorry. I'm just going to say, okay, you know about it, so return it. I don't know. <laughs> and she says, like, oh, I'll hate to part with the flame jewel, but at least I won't be pledged to a warty toad man. It wasn't fair to send a dream in, which he was so handsome when he was really a toad. Kefri, of course, is like, it's a bit late for returning them, you know? <laughs> you can't do all of that. Also, you've already accepted the scarf and a jewel to say nothing of giving him a cup that you drank from. So, you know, no one's going to force you into marriage, but, like, you kind of did this. Like, it's too late to turn around. Yeah, maybe if you were honest about the dream box, but no, actually, even then, you had still already accepted a bunch of gifts and given him your DNA, so... No, it was too late, even before then. You have lied too much and let it go too far. There's no getting out of it. And Kefiria goes on to explain, like, there's no need to be afraid of him either, though, because you're always going to have someone there from our family, either grandmother or I or Rach or Nana, watching over you as well. And on the other hand, you can't be discourteous because... This is like a powerful family. We're in debt, please. <laughs> and she adds on, that means no wild talk of warts or swamps or making babies. And you can't be late or rude. <laughs> right. And Malta gets up from the table and says, fine, I won't talk at all, she offered them. What could they do about that, really? How could they force her to talk to him or be nice to him? She wasn't going to pretend she actually likes him. He'd soon discover she found him disgusting and go away. She wondered if she'd be allowed to keep the scarf and jewel if he said he didn't want to marry her. It probably wasn't a good time to ask that. She's just, I know we say like she's 13. She's just so childish. It's yeah. It's like, well, you can't make uh, me be nice to this person. Malta, you need to fix this problem. And if you're grown up enough to accept these presents from a man, you are grown up enough to know how to be polite to a person. Like, (laughs) <laughs> it is not, they're not even saying pretend to like him. They're just saying, giving, give him the base level of courtesy. And she's like, no, you can't make me <sighs> girl. What? <laughs> Please. <laughs> she goes on saying like, Oh, when will father be home? And her mother's like, Oh, you don't expect him to late spring. Why? And she says, I just don't think he would make me do this, but pretend to like a man. I don't even want to know. And then isn't there anything good to eat in this house? Ronica bursts out, put some butter on it instead. No one asks you to pretend to like him. You are not a prostitute. He has not paid you to smile while he leers at you. I'm simply saying we expect you to treat him with courtesy. I'm sure he'll be a complete gentleman. All you need to do is treat him with respect. 
I am sure he will quickly decide you were not suitable and cease his attentions. The way she said it, it was insulting, as if Malta weren't worthy of him. I'll try, she says grudgingly. So, yeah, it's... Malta's shocked at the fact that her family members might think that she isn't worthy of a toady wart man. Right. Like... Also, like she goes from one to another. She doesn't actually listen to what they're saying. She mm-hmm. thinks like, oh, you've sold me to him, which, yeah, it's gross. I understand Malta's right. revulsion at the whole idea, but she's coming at it from the wrong angle of like, you sold me to him. I have to pretend to like this man and I'm pledged to him forever. While the whole time they're like, no, you just have to meet with him. Yep. Like we agreed with you to meet with him and then you make the decision. And if he decides not to, then good for you, too. (laughs) Yeah. Also, she was told before opening the dream box that that is accepting to be courted. That if you open the dream box, that means that you agree to the courtship. She was warned about it. She was warned. And she did that. They didn't make her do that. They tried to keep her from doing it and told her not to. And she knew what it was to do that. And I know, like, last time we were talking about this, I'm like... Obviously, she's 14. She can't grasp the finality of it. And I'm not saying she should have to grasp the finality, but she should be able to put two and two together because it is is her fault. She is intelligent. That like she this is her action. This is a result of her action that she chose to do, knowing that it would have consequences. She just thought she was above the consequences and she's finding she's not. And in this moment, when they're saying you're not above the consequences, she goes back to her favorite. Well, I can't wait till daddy's back and he'll make this go away. Yeah. No, he'd probably force you to marry him. <laughs> and then her her brain kind of rearranges everything. And she starts daydreaming of like, oh, well, if I have to do this, at least I can get some good gossip about it and tell Dello all about it. I won't have to say that he's warty or anything. Just I have men callers as well and goes through this whole thing of like, it'll be so nice. And I'm practicing the faces already of how I'll look. When I'm telling Dello all of this, she smiles to herself and looked far dreamily, practicing the look she'd wear when she told Dello about her young man. And she's going to try to make him seem mysterious and dreamy and not let on that he is warty and gross. Right. Her mom slams down honey in front of her because she's probably just not listening to anything that they're saying anymore. Malta absently says thank you and then finishes the thought with maybe Serwin would be jealous. So it's just like... It's just another part of like, oh, I can make somebody else jealous because I have men calling upon me. And those people are her supposed friends. Yeah. The situation is gross. We won't continue to harp on that because I think I did enough of that last time. But it's also, again, Malta just changing everything to fit her own narrative and not taking any sort of responsibility. And the I think the only reason she started thinking about the way she could make Dello jealous with it is because her grandma implied that she wasn't worthy. Yeah. I think if she wouldn't which, have done that. Which I do want to say, Ronica, man, you are voicing what we want to say, but also you are her grandmother and you should not be saying that to a 13-year-old's face. Yeah. <laughs> she's just she's just very fiery in her responses <laughs> to Malta, which is great to read, but like real life It's a good thing that this is a fiction world. <laughs> yeah, real life that's not great. Don't do that. Like <laughs> Also in real life, hopefully she would have been raised a little bit better and 
you know, <laughs> yeah. this wouldn't happen in the first place. But. Yeah, but no, it's <laughs> having having Ronica say that, I think, is what makes her think, well, fine, if you think I'm not worthy, I'll make him love me anyway. Right. Which just really seals her fate. Her, She's smart enough to get out of this. She could meet with him and be horrible and in a polite way, but right. horrible or act extra childish and get him to go away. And that would be fine. But instead she decides, well, she's going to make the most out of it. Cause at least it's a story to tell. Mm-hmm. And I just, like, every opportunity she has to make this better, she chooses to not do that. And that's, you know, a choice. Yeah. Granted, how much weight can we put on that choice? She's 13, but still like she's pretty intelligent and she is really like, I'm not going to listen to anything, but my own internal voice with my zero years of experience. And that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, girl. (laughs) We shift back to Wintra's point of view. After that storm in the kitchen early morning, we go back to the end of the previous one where Kyle is asking, are you going to let me live? He tried to speak flatly, but the harshness tinged his with, tinged with fear seeped into his words. Winter could hear weariness as well. He had to admire his father for his tenacity. He had lasted it out, and he's still, you know, standing sideways, sheltering the ribs on his left side. But he had helped bring the ship through, and now he asked for his life from his son. It had to be bitter. I will do all I can to see you live through this. I promise you. You don't believe me, but your death would grieve me. All the deaths on this ship have grieved me. Kyle Haven stared straight ahead. Another point to port was all he said. Around them, the water suddenly spread and calmed. So they're out of the, out of the immediate danger. They're still severely understaffed on this ship with no competent sailors. And... All of a sudden, there is a cry that there's another ship behind them. So Adar observes that it has the raven flag, and the joy in his voice was clear. Sa has truly provided. He tears off the rag of a shirt and starts waving it to hail the other ship. So, Kyle, this is about the humblest we've ever seen Kyle, and I think ever will see Kyle. In that he is begging for his life from Wintrow. Right. Essentially. As close to begging as Kyle Haven can get. But he is asking his son to spare his life. Yeah. I'm sure Kyle is still in shock, basically, about what happened. Right. Vast turn of events there. And he's just like, well, am I going to live now? Right. (laughs) My uselessness is up. Or my usefulness, excuse me, is up. And he said before this, Torg was thrown over because a slave considered him useless. So it's probably on his mind. (laughs) And I think it's hard because when Winter replies, you know, I know you aren't going to believe me, but your death would sadden me as did all the deaths on this ship. I don't think when I don't think Kyle believes him or cares because Kyle wouldn't care. I mean, I, I, I disagree with that take. If Kyle was in Wintrow's position, you think Kyle would care? Yeah, I think he would. Not as deeply as Wintrow does, but I don't think he's 
I don't think he's like Torg in that situation. I think if the roles were reversed and Kyle was enslaved by his son and treated poorly his whole trip and made to be subservient in the way that Wintro was and ridiculed the way Wintro was, I don't think he would feel that bad about people dying. I think he would have wholeheartedly helped the rebellion. And I, I really feel like, especially if it meant that he could gain the ship, I think he would not feel bad. I think the only exception being maybe feeling a little bad for Wintro because they're related. You mean if Kyle was like the son in the situation? No, I mean like if the roles were reversed. I mean, I guess that oh. means that he's the son, but like if the roles were reversed and he went through what Wintro did. Because he has such like a, this is my father. I have to listen to him. His words are whatever. I think he would still be saddened because it's so beat into him. He must have had like a rough childhood too, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think he would feel remorse and would feel bad about losing his father in some way. Mm, But again, like not as much as Wintrow, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) Not as much as almost any other character in, in the books. Fair. I don't know. I guess I think in general, even without reversing the situations, I feel like Kyle would probably feel more relief than sadness over Wintrow's death, especially because it meant that he wouldn't have to tell Kefria about him being a slave. Right. True. So I don't know. I feel like, and I don't think Kyle cares about the other people that have died on board. Maybe Gantry. He seemed to care about Torg being thrown over. Maybe that was just Did the he? shock. But yeah, like he paused for a long time and then his voice was very harsh and raw. I guess. I don't know. I thought that was more of a, okay, so they're really going to get rid of anybody that they could need be. to. Yeah. I don't, not like a, oh no, my friend Torg. Yeah. I'm just pointing out to yeah. some things that could be, could be evidence. I'm not saying you're not. <laughs> so we have Kenneth closing in fast behind them. And obviously the slaves know the reputation of this Raven flag and are very happy to see it. Sorcor. Back on the Marietta, as they're closing in on the Vivacia, shouts back that there's a boy at their her helm and a mess on her decks. I think they've had a mutiny. Kenneth shouting back, all the better for us. Make ready a boarding party. We'll take her as soon as she reaches the main channel. Sorkor basically says, wait, I, is it, he's in disbelief. He's like, I think that the kid is knows what he's doing on the wheel, but everything's wrong about this and they're hailing us to come aboard this is really weird and Kenneth's like oh all the better for us let's get ready I'll lead them myself he says Genkis come take the wheel Etta where is my crutch and in Kenneth's eyes this is true he's like my luck held the ship is mine for the taking he had believed in it he had persevered and there it was his beautiful live ship as, it, as they gained her side, he thought he had never seen anything lovelier. He's looking down at Vivacia. He sees the bodies heaped on a pile of fallen canvas. Her sails were hiked up like a bod's skirts, but her silvery hull glistened and the clean lines of her were like music. He swayed and Etta clutched at him. Genkis had the wheel now. The old sailor gave him an odd look, half of pity and half of fear. And Etta is trying to convince him, please go down below. She says, my love, 
I think you should go below and rest for a time. Let Sorkor secure the live ship for you. He's adamant, like, no. I am going to go on there. She's mine. I've come to her through my luck. No. Edda's begging, please, if you could just see yourself now. And then Sorkor joins them and swears and says, oh, Kenneth, oh, sir. So he's looking real rough here. Yeah. But Kenneth is trying to last through this. He even had the thought before in the previous chapters that like, yeah, I actually might die before this happens. He was kind of manipulating Sorkor with this is my dying wish. But at the same time, he was kind of thinking, maybe it is. (laughs) But he's realizing finally he's getting his wish to go to a live ship. And he's not going to put that down, that task down. He's going to gain the decks of this ship, no matter what. So he tells Sorkor he's going to lead the boarding party. Sorkor confirms, yes, sir, quietly. And Edda tries to argue with Sorkor now, like, you can't let him. You know, he's exhausted. I should never let him stay on the deck if I had known what it would cost. Sorkor says, let him go. I'll rig a Boston's chair for you, sir, and I'll see you safely to the deck of the live ship. But, Edda began, but Sorkor cut her off. I promised him, he said harshly. Look at him, woman. Let me keep my promise to my captain. In a lower voice, he added, I think there's little else we can do now. And she says, I'm going with him, and Sorkor says, we both are. They think it's the end. Yeah, he must be looking real rough. Yeah, <laughs> Yes. Spending all night out... With already a fever in a storm. Right. Exhausted, trying to hold on to the wheel. Oof. Yeah, not a not a great look for Kenneth. But I think it also speaks to how sick Kenneth is because he's not really commenting or even thinking negatively on the comments that he's dying. No, he's he's, he's just a passive watcher at this point. Yeah, which I think really screams something is wrong. Because when has Kenneth ever not had an opinion about anything? Or a thought of like when Edda tries to beg Sorkor. He doesn't even have a thought of like how dare she try to talk without him there or something like that, you know? Right. Or this is them scheming to get my boat that I earned. And not, not even that. It's just, okay, they're talking. That's cool. I can't wait to go on the pretty boat. So, yeah, they're definitely not wrong that it's... (laughs) Not a good time. No, yeah, this is this is very, very dire circumstances for Kenneth and very dire circumstances for the crew on board. Everything's kind of culminating here. And in Malta's mind, it's very dire circumstances for her future. Of yes. <laughs> yeah, dire circumstances all around. Mm-hmm. This kind of sets up the interaction with Wintrow and Kenneth now think not next chapter but the one after so we're we're all coming together here baby (laughs) we're cooking now oh yeah it's all coming together (laughs) definitely an interesting end to the chapter with Kenneth being so close to death I think it really sets that feeling of urgency and with so few chapters left it kind of does feel like Is he going to die? I don't think we get a point of view from him. For the rest of the time? Yeah, except maybe right at the end, but maybe not. I think it's just Wintrow's point of view of them. Yeah. 
either way, it's not great. And that's the like kind of the cliffhanger. I guess the cliffhanger is really Kenneth finally taking over the live ship as he promised. Right. But yeah, we get the the pirates coming up there, freed slaves, Saadar's bloodthirst coming through. Yeah. Definitely a lot going on. Yeah, for sure. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us this week. If you have thoughts about what's going on here or the, the climax of this book or anything like that, please let us know. We'll always read all of your emails that you send in or your comments or your posts. You can reach us at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can message or comment on any of our social media posts. We're at isfitshappy at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on YouTube as well. So thank you very much. Can't wait to hear from you next week. So now we're going to get into some things that you guys have brought to our attention. And we're going to start first with a couple different ideas that came after episode 144, Defiance and Alliance. And this is about the meeting with the Rainwild people. The first thing that we're going to talk about is something brought up by Ellen on Facebook. And Ellen was asking about... Calwin. So she says that she got married at 15, but we don't know if she came from Bingtown or the Rain Wilds at 15. And she has really heavy deformities. So that kind of points towards her maybe being from the Rain Wilds, but is there any definitive answer? Yeah. Jonas chimes in kind of with my thoughts as well, at least the first part of his is that um, Jonas says, I thought she came from Bingtown, but maybe she just meant she was married at 15. I, I'm of the opinion, just from reading the books and the context of what she was saying when she was saying it, that she came from Bingtown as well. But also the deformities point to something else. And Jonas also ma- makes mention, wouldn't Ronica know her from before then? from Bingtown, if she came from Bingtown. Right. My thought on that is, I don't think Colwyn is as old as Ronica. That's fair, because... Life expectancy isn't that long for Rainwilders. Right. And if she was married at 15, started having kids, and started doing this at like 18, that's still like 20 years of doing this with Ronica or something. You know could put her in her 40s or maybe 50 or something like that. And that's, she would be too young for Ronica to have grown up around her. So True. it still could be from Bingtown, but the heavy deformities does, I don't know. Well, affects people differently. It does affect people differently. We also know that people from Bingtown can be born with the deformities, right? right. Like that's part of the curse, quote unquote, of the cursed shores is that their babies look more like monsters than humans. And I'm wondering if this is sort of a Timera situation where maybe some old trader families kept maybe a deformed baby. Yeah. I don't know. Cause it wasn't that deformed. I don't know. It's really, yeah. Also, I'm not sure which side I lie on. Yeah. I kind of feel like she's from the rain wilds 
especially because she seemed so chill with the fact that she got married at 15. I think especially in the rain wilds, that's probably very common because yeah. of the low life expectancy. That's probably the courting age is probably a lot lower. You can see that. So that's kind of what I, where I'm standing that she has always been from the rain wilds, but yeah, just the way that she like phrased what she chimed in with made me think otherwise, I guess, with my first re- read throughs of the books. I don't know. Well, thank you, Jonas and Ellen, for bringing that to our attention. And we still don't know, but <laughs> hopefully there's somebody out there listening who knows a little bit more than all of us and can send us the answer yeah i'm trying to think of if there was extra information in the previous section talking about her in ronica's head maybe but i mean I, I just don't remember we could probably get a better age guess on her from the first chapter that ronica meets with her because ronica makes mention of how long they've been or like makes some sort of comment to the sense of how long they've been doing this right So this is Kelwin's quote in that meeting for reference. Kefria cries, wedding, she will be barely 14. She would be young, Kelwin agreed, and adaptable. For a Bingtown woman marrying into a Rainwild family, that is advantageous. She smiled and the fleshy protuberances on her face wobbled hideously at Kefria. I was 15. Because she she directly reflects on for someone from Bingtown adapting into Rainwild's. So, like, that makes me think that she's from Bingtown. Right. But wouldn't that put her at Kefria's age then? I have no idea. I think a little bit older than Kefria, but maybe not. I was going to say, wouldn't Kefria then know her? Although maybe there's no recognition because she looks so different. Who knows? We don't know. Maybe she is Bingtown. Either way. Thank you guys for writing in. Yeah. Interesting thought. We also got an email from Jonas about that scene and how it really gives insight to Kefria and Ronica. Yeah. And and their relationship and the relationship with Malta. Right. And Jonas really gives Ronica credit for standing up for Malta Clearly, even this episode, we mentioned that Ronica has a lot of, I don't know if it's quite hate, but hate adjacent disdain, (laughs) disdain for Malta and does not seem to like her and does not feel bad about letting Malta know she doesn't like her. But in the moment where her granddaughter, who is only 13, is being threatened to be taken away, she stands her ground and she may not be a great grandmother, but in that moment. She kind of is. Right. And he goes on to remark that Ronica and Malta are very similar in that in that way. They're very, very strong-willed. They're very abrasive and headstrong in their own thoughts. Ronica obviously has a ton of experience in the social world and has way more, places way more value on that tradition and the social graces that you have to adhere to. But they're very similar personality-wise. Meanwhile, Kefria's kind of caught in the middle because she's more soft-spoken. And yes, she is very strong herself and intelligent. And that shows in that meeting with all of the women there. And she can take control of situations and does right. She's just not molded. 
And Jonas wonders, like, what would happen if Veronica was more like Kefria and could raise her up? Or even just respected the difference yeah, that her daughter true. is showing. And it is really impressive. He does point out about how even though there are moments where Kefria makes a little slip or makes a, a mistake here and there, there are still so many good moments where she really takes control of the situation and turns it on its head and is able to softly and calmly stick up for her daughter and try to get what she wants out of the situation. And it really, Jonas talks about how it would be really cool to see what that would have looked like if she would have had more experience with important conversations or had been nurtured yeah. in her own way of doing things. What kind of effect that would have on Malta. Yeah. Too. And that the so. way, yeah. And the way that's talked about, it kind of does make me think, especially because of the chapter we just read about Kyle and um, Wintrow, because we again have paternal and child figures that are opposites in how they do things and both are good at the way that they do things. They just aren't appreciated by the other. Right. And I mean, a little bit of a difference because <laughs> Kefria, I mean, I guess Ronica is not as horrible as a person as Kyle, but I think there could be an argument made that if we didn't ever see in Ronica's point of view and only read from Kyle and Malta and oh, Gantry, yeah. like, Maybe Ronica would be the Kyle of this book. We we kind of talked about that in the first trilogy, I think about Regal, right? Yeah. Because from his point of view, he's relatively rational in his hate, right? He thinks mm-hmm. that everyone conspired to murder his mother. Yeah. <laughs> and that would be his point of view. And like, that's why I hate these people. Right. And so I think it's really interesting to have that mirrored relationship happening across different generations and different bloodlines even. Right. Yeah. And how differently that turns out for everyone. So thank you, Jonas, for writing in. And we had a couple of emails based on the first trilogy that we covered, the Farseer trilogy here. One of them was kind of a mechanical question, I guess. It was from uh, Ava talking about, how they told time. This person was kind of intrigued by how the how the fool could know down to like a difference of minutes for different activities, like saying, oh, you don't have time to eat down in the kitchen's fits. You have to eat up here and then you can run up there because otherwise you'll be late. How can they get that specific about things? Right. Or how do they know when Fitz wakes up and it's still dark out? How does he know that he's so many minutes late or how many, Like you know. just before dawn or whatever, you yeah. know? And I feel like this is just writer convenience. Right. Also, I do want to point out because they really, Ava really went in on this theory and talking about how like in our world, whenever like the seasons change how long the day is. Right. And it seems like that happens in Buckkeep too, where they have short days in the winter and Mm -hmm. long days in the summer, which happens to us too. And so in that case, especially how are they keeping track of time? Because the time would be changing every day, but yet they're still so exact and all have meetings at certain times and all talk about being late. And if they don't have any, they don't mention clocks ever. How are they knowing that they're late for a meeting? I, 
first of all, like I said, I think it's writer convenience. But second of all, I feel like there's probably a system of bells ringing out the hours. And then those people would have, you know, either candle clocks, water clocks, hourglasses, or just sundials. Somehow just marking off some increments of time. That's as fair. long as you keep it consistent and have like the same amount of increments per day, it's fine. <laughs> you know, I was just going to argue that even bell towers have clocks on them. But then I was thinking about the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which obviously is super accurate. And I don't <laughs> think there's a clock, um, at least in the cartoonized version of that time period, which seems adjacent to the vibe that Hob was going for for Fitz's time <laughs> period. So maybe they didn't need clocks. They just had bells. Yeah, it, it seems to me like all of them have, like Ava says in here, very strong internal clocks about when to wake up and those kinds of times. And, you know, pre-dawn is pretty explainable because it gets light a lot earlier than the sun actually peaks over the horizon. Like I've been up and been sitting outside from an hour before dawn until after dawn. And you can tell when it's like just before dawn. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there's some explanation in that. But yeah, the hours and the, the demarcation of the hours and like class times and being late and stuff is just a little bit nebulous. And I think Robin Hobb is just writing a story and doesn't need to explain those things in her mind. So. Yeah, fair enough. But either way, thank you for bringing that to our attention because it's a fun little detail that is exciting to think about. I don't know. (laughs) So thank you, Ava. All little world building things. And the last email we got about that trilogy, as I said, there was two, is about Royal Assassin. Carrie emails us to make a comment about Chapter 10, and this is when the fool is singing the song in public in the middle of the corridor to Fitz and embarrasses him terribly. But the fool seemingly has some words in that song that are slightly prophetic. And I remember talking and having this discussion back then. Of course, I don't remember the contents of that discussion, really, because it was a long time ago when we recorded that. But I do remember having discussion about what these lyrics meant. And Carrie specifically points out the phrase, Consummate all from which you've refrained. There's a future not yet fashioned, founded by your fiery passions. And is wondering our thoughts on that interpretation or what that could mean. While Carrie herself points out that initially they thought that it meant dutiful. Like the fool knows that Fitz fathers dutiful and that dutiful is a pivotal player later on when they awakening ice fire. The fool may not have known it was Verity in Fitz's body. So all he knows is that Fitz and Ketrickin have a fiery passion at night and she gets pregnant, therefore saving the Farseer line. So kind of wondering our thoughts on that line and that theory. Mm, I don't know. I feel like we've discussed this both ways back in the day, but I don't remember if it made it into the episode or not. (laughs) But I kind of like that theory, but I was leaning more towards the other, uh, the other definition of consummate instead of consummate. It was like a consummate professional. They're just like with flair or dramatic. And 
I assumed that the fool was talking about Fitz's skills from which he has refrained from using, like the wit during that period. He needs to use all those, and there's a future that's not yet fashioned, founded by his, by Fitz's loves, which is, you know, Molly, the choices he makes surrounding Molly, the choices he makes surrounding Verity, and him using his wit and his skill and his, all of his assassin stuff, everything that he's learned comes into play and the choices that he makes really shape that future. So that was my interpretation. I remember from, from reading it back then of like, this is referring to the things that that trilogy specifically is speaking about, but it does kind of fit a little bit into the dutiful thing. If you like look back on it, I think fool has a quote about, you know, I'll say a prophecy and then 300 years from now, wise men will look back and say, this event fits this perfectly, but we won't know until those wise men tell us that it was the perfect fit. Right. I, I feel like it's a little bit of that. If I'm being honest for my point of view, looking back at it with dutiful in mind in, in, in my thoughts, it's just the, the fool remarking on what he had to do at the end of the trilogy. Yeah, I guess I don't know either way. Uh, I like the idea that it's dutiful, but I also like if it's nettle. Interesting, yeah. Um, okay. Although I guess is Fitz really holding himself back from going after nettle? No. <laughs> yeah, or, or no pursuing pl- Molly to... Or, sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. He's not really ever holding himself back from consummating with Molly. (laughs) And I guess you could argue that that would be a feeling he holds towards Ketrickin because he has seen Ketrickin that way through his uncle's feelings. And I think he himself has a little bit of that crush on her. Yeah. We, we talked about that. Mm -hmm. The end of um, Assassin's Apprentice, I believe when he first meets her. Right. So that it definitely could be about that, but I don't know. It's it's really hard. I don't know. I'm I feel like I'm not good at riddles and I'm not very good at interpreting poems on the best of days. <laughs> so, so I'm yeah. not sure. I like it. I like the idea a lot and I support it. And this is obviously written as something to be slightly confusing or obscured because right. it's the fool saying something prophetic, but in the middle of a hallway to make fun of fits in front of noble people. Uh huh. So yeah, interpretations either way are, are fun, but I, I actually completely forgot about that scene until Carrie emailed it. So thank you very much for bringing that back up. Cause it is interesting to think about the future ramifications, if it could fit in across uh, trilogies. It could also be, about B. Yeah. Because he holds back from Molly only after she thinks he's dead. And their fiery passion does create yeah. B, who is the um, forgotten son or whatever. Yeah. Or I don't know. Maybe that is Fitz. Still not, uh, not clear. But it could be B. It could be B. That's interesting, but I would say I don't think the fool would be remarking on that because he thinks he's going to die at the end of Tawny Man and his vision stops after that death. Here's my argument against that. He doesn't know it yet, so he keeps seeing everything until he's convinced that he's going to die and then stops seeing? No, so I think his most clearest 
stuff is all in the time period where he thinks he's going to be alive. But there's no rule that the people can't see past their lifetimes True. and can't see changes. Like, isn't there talks about them? Do, like, so, so, so similar then kind of actually to what I was saying, where once he's convinced he's going to die, he can't see in the future anymore. No, I don't think he knows he's seeing that far into the oh, future. Okay. Like if you think about how many prophets, prophets in the libraries at Claris have talked about fits and Mm -hmm. it wasn't, that didn't happen during their lifetime. I think some of them just are general future things. So he's just mistaken that he can't see beyond his own death and believes it that to be so, but it's not actually true. Yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. Stepping outside of like inside the story, (laughs) stepping out of that. Um, it's definitely not about B. Or I even think about Dutiful because I don't think Robin Hobb knew where the story was going yet. Because <laughs> she's like, a, what are the two types? What are they called? Like an architect and a gardener. She's more like the gardener where she has the characters and kind of knows where they want to go. And just they follow the connecting dots in between. So I think she knew the start and the end and then connected and filled out the dots along the way. So I don't think this prophecy was specifically about those people although i could be proven wrong maybe i'll get to ask her someday but um (laughs) you know what inside the story inside the lore those are super interesting theories and they do kind of fit when we do eventually meet robin hop and get to ask her our questions you can ask her about that and i'll ask her about why she made that angry man be so mean to child fits Barrel man. Barrel man. Justice, <laughs> justice for fits against Barrel Man, and I'm like not going to let it go. I think that's the first chapter, right? Or is it the it's second the, chapter? The second chapter, thank you. Okay. <laughs> it might even be the third, but whatever. Oh, I, t- I said, I'm pretty sure I said in that chapter I would ask about him, and you know what? I'm keeping to it. I remembered. I reread the first chapter of Assassin's Apprentice recently, and there was a name of a guard in there, Jason. That I totally forgot about that we talked about as well. (laughs) Jason. Love Jason. (laughs) (laughs) You love Jason. He's he's like, hey, this is chivalry's bastard here, Birik. And then like makes fun of Birik. Every single person in this world has such a like cool fantasy name. And then Robin Hobb just like at random is like normal name. (laughs) Jason. Jason. Kyle. Kyle. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly love it. I don't love Kyle, but like... (laughs) Like the names. Yeah, I think it's funny. Cedric. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a normal name. It's more normal than Tymera or or there's Alice then. Alice, yeah. Uh, Uh. Either way. Thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. We love to see all the theories. And even when they're from the first trilogy or the next trilogy we're going to read, we like seeing your guys' thoughts. So keep them coming. 